This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and today I'm talking to Tim DeLauder, leader of the Polyphonic Spree. The first time I saw the Polyphonic Spree, all 22 members wandered in a single file line from some place behind the crowd at Voodoo, New Orleans Halloween weekend rock festival. They worked their way through the crowd, climbed over the security barriers in front of the stage, then climbed on stage all while wearing white robes. At the time, the British rock press picked up on the robes, the Lauder's long, loose curls, their Texas home, and the choir of female voices, and played with the possibility that the band might be some kind of cult. The Lauder talks a little bit about that and the robes in our conversation, so I won't give that away, except to say no, they weren't a cult. They were the kind of band I loved, though, with a lot of instruments and voices wrapped around solid, slightly psychedelic pop songs. It also made complete sense that they recorded Holiday Dream, Sounds of the Holidays, Volume 1, in 2012. For me, it successfully updates Christmas classics and makes sense for polyphonic spree. Today, Tim DeLauder and I talk about that, among other things. The conversation starts with talk about the Spree's new album, Aflatus, a collection of covers that I wrote about at myspillmilk.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Many conversations that I've had on 12 Songs dealt with COVID and what bands did when they couldn't tour or do the things they normally do. Aflatus is another chapter in that story, as DeLauder explains. I could tell you more, but he'll get to it better than I can in just a few moments. Before we get started, I want to start with the current obsession. This year was the first time that my family and I got to watch the Eurovision Music Contest, and it didn't disappoint. For much of the time, it was as if Lady Gaga and Kylie Minogue were backstage coaching the contestants. And there was something kind of great and kind of awkward about seeing the Lizzo of Malta and the Billie Eilish of Bulgaria. Our favorite band came in fifth, Iceland's Daya Freyr. First, as anyone who listened to my interview with Dr. Octorok could guess, any band that features 8-bit self-portraits of themselves on their sweaters is my kind of band. Their idea of big showmanship was three members of the band carrying curved guitars that joined together to form a circle around them when it came time for the big instrumental break. The song itself, 10 Years, is sweetly beautiful and a celebration of long-term domestic relationships. Here's a bit of it. We've been together for a decade now. Still afraid I am loving you more. If I could do it all again. I'd probably do it all the same as before I don't wanna know what happened if I never had had your love How did it become myself before I met you? I don't wanna know what happened if I never about your love Everything about you, I like We started out so fast, now we can take it slower Love takes some time, takes a little time, so take a little time it ages like wine How does it keep getting better? In the video, the band forms a Voltron-like robot to dance fight a monster that's wrecking houses in the Icelandic countryside. And it's awesome, too. While on a road trip last weekend, my daughter periodically updated us 
on the Diaphraer rabbit hole that she had gone down on YouTube, including the discovery that he had recorded a version of Old Town Road. While I was following up later in the day to find out what she had been watching, I discovered that last Christmas they also released a Christmas song, Every Moment is Christmas with You. It's not as perfect as 10 years, and their 2020 entry into the Eurovision contest that was canceled by COVID, Think About Things. Still, it's pretty fine, and the video that I'll link to in the show notes has a sense of humor as nutty as the monster dance fight. I could explain, but it really wouldn't do the video justice. So this is Daya Frere, and Every Moment is Christmas with You. I'll be back on the other side with Tim DeLauder of the Polyphonic Spring. It's a cold December night The snow is so romantic Under this blanket there Is room for two We sit together Watching home alone For the hundredth time Wow it's so Christmassy Everywhere I look And this glue I won't Just drink itself I wanted to start off with with the flat with the flatus and what's the story behind that? So uh, we've done a lot of covers through the years decided to we were playing this show that was for a covers night and um it was right at the beginning of covid literally um where i think the week before people are like should we even go outside and our show was scheduled and we were had been practicing for about a month for this particular night to play all these covers and the night we were supposed to play literally three hours before we make the call not to play the between us and the venue we come to a, a realization that's not a good idea to bring people in so we canceled the show um but we'd already been together for like i said a month we were together that that day and the night before rehearsing these songs and we're like well shit man we've got all this music and we're ready to play let's just go back and record this and document it so when we go back to play in the future whenever that is we'll have a you know documentation of it so we went back to our home studio where we rehearse and we just recorded them all in about 10 hours oh, wow. uh, just a live recording just put the mics up and just it was basically just for us to have um so people can remember their parts and things that we had done because we didn't know how long it was going to be before we were going to be playing again and so that's what that was and then lo and behold when we listened back to it and mixed it and did some stuff we we're like damn, this is pretty good. We should probably just kind of put this out. People want some music and um, it's fun. Let's put this thing out. And so that's where it came from. You know, it's real. It wasn't a lot of thought behind it. It wasn't, it was just something that we were doing for ourselves to document what we had done in the past to go back to. And now it's released to the world. So before we pick up on the, uh, on the album itself, take me back to that moment because as a musician and suddenly they're telling you it's not a good idea to play and you're realizing it's not a good idea to play, you know, how does that affect you when you're looking, when, you know, you're, this is, this well, is your life. 
I think that we were all, and I say this globally, yourself included, all of us, we were just, I think we didn't really know what the hell was going on. We knew that this thing was, was bad. We knew that Corona was bad and it was out there, but we didn't, we just didn't have much information at the very beginning. So when they're talking about, you know, you know, not being around people and you should be quarantining. And it's like, that was kind of first is a bit unnerving. And then, you know, you're for, for us because we're like, what the hell? I mean, this is how we, we make, we go out and play live. It's our livelihood. And, um, but you, at the beginning of it, you're not even really thinking about that. You're just kind of just thinking about what the hell's going on here and how long is this going to last? Are we going to do this for a week, a couple of weeks? Um, so when we weren't in recording, we were, like I said, we had been together every night. So we were like, well, shit, if, if we have this thing, then we've all got it and there's really nothing we can do about it. So we might as well just, and we all feel okay. We might as well just go ahead and record these and, and continue to be together for this short period of time. Um, none of us knew when we left the rehearsal space that day that we literally wouldn't be seeing some of them for a year and that our lives were going to be completely different um, for the next year. And uh, well, now forever, things are just different, but um, you didn't realize that till a couple of days later. So at the beginning, it was just kind of, I think what, what everybody was doing, just scratching their heads and wondering how long is this, what is this, how long is this going to last? And is this going to pass? And um, that's kind of how it was, you know? I would imagine you would have a slightly different perspective on, on all of this because your band is so big. You know, if you're a, if you're a four piece and they say one in 10 people will get it, you and another band together could all miss it and they'll get somebody, right. they'll get somebody in some cover band. So, uh, but, right, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. but, but your band's big enough to say the math doesn't work really well for, for a band your size. Was that scary? Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, it's scary. I mean, for someone who's almost like, you know, pride themselves on having such a large, large band and not paring it down for, for reasons of, you know, financial reasons and reasons that would make it easier on everybody that works with us. Um, it's, it's been, that's been worrisome for me. Um, I don't want to have to change the sound of my band because of the environment of, 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 uh, COVID, you know? Um, and I'm not, I mean, I'm just going to work within the parameters and do what, do what we have to do. But yeah, I, you know, it was scary, you know, losing, we had shows booked. We had something really huge book that was going to be going for about six, eight months that we were teaming up with another, um, very successful artist. And, it was going to take us all over the world. It was a big deal and it just totally evaporated. Um, so not only, uh, finances just went out the door, but, you know, um, collaborations with people that we wanted to work with and, and things like that on a creative level that were, um, going to be really super cool, uh, just went away. So I, you know, the, 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 uh, the size of our band, like you were talking about the size and how many people would get it. You know, there's been, I think out of the 20, 
22 people in the band, I think. Um, one, two, three, maybe five had it. Wow. Have had COVID. Um, the rest didn't, never got it. And they all got it um, later on in the year, not even at the beginning, like when it was kind of out of, out of control. Um, so we did all right, you know, considering the size of the band, you figured, <laughs> oh my God. You know, yeah, if yeah. one gets it in, this, in the polyphonics free, they're all going to get it, you know, <laughs> but we were, we weren't together, yeah. you know, which, you know, also it, it, we're so happy that we recorded that stuff on a, just a, Hey man, let's go do this. And I had a friend that um, is a filmmaker that came in and goes, Pan, let me just shoot y'all, you know, recording this stuff. It might be kind of cool. We can use it or not use it. I'm like, all right, whatever. And so it's kind of cool we did that because we documented us all together at the birth of COVID. And then literally it all fractured from there. Was there a common thread in the uh, songs that you chose? Or what's the common thread? Let me actually turn that around. Some of these songs we had done live with the Spree through the years. There's a lot of cover songs we didn't put on here that we've done live with the Spree. Um, we picked some that we've, that we've done. We, some were like a nostalgic value for me. Um, the Rush cover, I was in a band in high school um, called uh, Regency, where we covered various bands it was kind of everybody was doing covers at that time and rush was one of the bands in that song in particular and i thought hell this will be fun i wonder if i can still you know hit oh salesman part <laughs> i was like let me see if i can still do that now and i knew the guys in the band would have fun doing it and they're all freaking amazing musicians and so that was just kind of for me i was like man i want to try this it'll be fun and um it's no way i mean come on it's rush trying to cover rush is crazy in its own right but it's i thought we did all right with it you know and and my vocals are okay you can hear a little bit of straining in there but uh for someone who was you know 18 at the time 17 18 doing it to a guy who's 55 now doing it i thought i did all right you know <laughs> um there's a lot of people that'll disagree a lot of rush fans would disagree with me but um i don't know we had just had fun so that's sure. what that was and then the uh daniel johnston um, I played it, me personally, I did a little solo acoustic uh, tribute to Daniel Johnston at the Kessler in Dallas. And um, I just chose that song, the, the Daniel Johnston song, because I just, it's such a charming, um, his voice is so charming. I love that song. And, and so we did, I said, let's bring it to the spree and do it with the spree. 
Uh, the Barry Manilow thing was another thing from a, a nostalgic background. Um, uh, used to run my dad's business um, on the weekends when I was young. And there was this Barry Manilow tape there that I'd play over and over. And I just liked the epicness of the schmaltzy kind of like uh, kind of uh, pop songs that that Barry did. And and that song I've been doing little solo acoustic shows around town. And I thought, let's do it with the spree. And the rest are just kind of ones we had done with the band. The Porpoise song, we'd made ours. We, we've been doing that song for over 10 years and or maybe a little bit longer. And it's kind of made that song our own. And so, and Run To Me is another one we had done. And then the, the Don't Change is one that we were playing in Australia and we wanted to like uh, play a, a song to um, celebrate NXS in Australia. And that was the reason for doing that. So they're all like based around you know, they're all sort of influences through the years. The association is a total influence for me. I love that early 70s sunny pop music. And um, so that's why that's on there. So it's the culmination of all the things that have kind of influenced us through the years. Which was harder to sing, Barry Manilow or Getty Lee? Oh, God. Um, They're both pretty, pretty tough. Um, the uh, you have to do a little falsetto with with Getty Lee, but it really is that register is kind of in my my range. I like to glide, you know, with my uh, like, yeah, begin the day with the friendly like yeah, yeah. I kind of like I I like that element in my vocals. Of, I like to glide like that. So I don't know. That kind of felt good to me. The uh, uh, Barry Manilow is more of kind of just a straight forward singing and my my voice is kind of uh i don't know it's it's uh i feel like i'm better if i can glide a little bit more when i'm straightforward it's it's really kind of strange to me i don't it was it was tough kind of singing barry mallow i'd say barry mallow as i was thinking while listening to it that there's a whole level of yearning yeah, that Barry Manilow. That is just so much feeling. Yeah, it is. It's crazy, and I, I think that's what I liked about it is that it is. And in, in hang on one second, sure. someone called. Someone called. Are you there? Yeah, it's like I think that's what I like about those songs. It's just like he's just reaching, you know, for this 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 validation and feeling and. Yeah, and I do. I love that part about it, and um, that resonates with me. But yeah, trying to like put that across with singing kind of straight was was kind of tough for me, you know.
of the things I always like about the polyphonic spree is the way it feels like a self-contained community on stage. And one of the things I was thinking about when I asked about the common thread is that these songs are all songs people can sing along with. And it they feel like like an invitation for you for the audience to join the band in a way. Well, I think, well, the fact that they're all kind of like, you know, charting top songs, you know, they're, they were all popular songs off, off the radio. I think that, you know, there's, there's an element there that I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I was, I was raised on the radio as a kid. I didn't really start doing my kind of, you know, buying records and getting serious about buying records and all that till you know, way off into my late teens, early, you know, early twenties, I'd start zoning in and really trying to find me. I own a record store now. I've owned a record store for 20 years now, but, um, at the time I was getting all my music from the radio and those were all hits. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of people out there that know those same songs. There's no, I mean, there's a couple of them on there. They're probably obscure, like the, the, uh, Porpoise song, the Daniel Johnston, um, but all the rest of them are pretty much, those were all like billboard charting songs. And um, I think that's something that resonates with them. It brings back a, a time that they were, they know those songs and they can sing to them. i tell you what, I think, I, I, I think we're probably pretty close in age and experience because I think about how important AM radio was for me in the, through the early and mid 70s. And the fact that I could hear like Roger Whitaker and Alice Cooper and um, and Van McCoy back right. to back to back, and I could get you know I could get almost anything uh, musically could come up. And if you didn't like what you were hearing, give it five, give it three minutes, and you're going to get something else. And that idea that right from the start you could hear glam next to disco next right. to uh, next to folk music it's like that's something that you know that would stop being the case and that you would be fed solely the kind of music that you thought you wanted and that was all exactly. you get exactly yeah i agree it, it all went downhill from there from that <laughs> point. it's it's certain i mean i struggled through that for years you know i would like you know songs that i thought that would you know we should be going with you know i had a program director tell me one time who really liked myself and liked the band and wanted this was with tripping daisy and i was playing him a song that i like this is a song i want to go with and it's granted tripping daisy wasn't like um i mean it was pop you know but at the same time it was alternative and and all that but um you know i thought this sounded like this could totally be you know on the radio you know i just thought hey man check this out and he's like tim he goes because listen to the radios you need to write songs like this this is what we're playing and it was just like it's so it just crushed me because i was like why 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 does it have to be like this like why can't and this is when everything sounded the same and they were trying to form it you know formulate their stations to keep pe people on as long as possible that's why you would hear you know some early 90s song and then switch the next station and be on there again because they're just grabbing listeners from in between commercials but they're keeping it rooted in this same genre of music and that the type of music was just this same 
monotonous stuff that was going on and no variety. And uh, it just kind of bummed me out when he told me that. And I said, well, why would I want to be like that? I mean, you've already got that everywhere. This is something new and fresh, man. And like, people will enjoy this, this, because this doesn't sound like anything you got going on right now. You know, and, and I'm like, isn't that the point of this? Like, you're, you're the program director. This is, isn't this what you want? You want to turn people onto something new and not like what they can move on down in here right after you leave, you know, for a break. Um, and that's just not the case. They were totally on an agenda that, that kept going. And, you know, it's kind of filtered out now because radio is blah, whatever. I mean, everyone's doing podcasts and everyone's get their music from Spotify and streaming music and all that kind of stuff. But you have radio stations now, ironically, are going back to how it used to be playing AM radio, early seventies. It's all going back to that. Um, because they can, can kind of do whatever they want to do at this point. So, yeah, I don't know why I went off on a tangent like that. Apologize. That's okay. I'll, I'll tell you what, the yeah. funny. The funny thing about that was that the programmers. I mean, I understood the logic, but the programmers were in a way fundamentally wrong because yeah. there's. It, I don't know if you remember this. There was a time, kind of before people got too worried about privacy, where if you had an iMac. Uh, laptop and you were in a public space and you opened up your iTunes, you could see who well, other people who had iTunes on their computer and you could see what was in their library. Right. And at one point I was doing a story on this and I looked and what I could see was that everybody had at least one Billie Holiday album or some Billie Holiday songs. Everybody had either some Hank Williams or some Garth Brooks or they, everybody had some country. And what you right. look around and realize that nobody just listened to a steady diet of alternative rock. Nobody right. just listened to a steady diet of hip hop. Everybody has Wu Tang, but everybody has, some, you know, other stuff in there too. And right. that idea that all people ever wanted was just a nonstop diet of, you know, of teen pop. It's like that's just never been the right. case. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've been wondering about is, like, I remember when Polyphonics Breeze started and white choir robes, and and I could never tell at the time, you know, press would write about sort of, you know, cult vibe, et cetera. And I, and I never knew if that was them laying that, you know, laying that on you or if that was actually part of the band, so I, part of the concept at the moment. But I wonder... Now that time has passed, now that you're farther down the line, is polyphonic spree an idea or is it a basically kind of a musical palette and a collection of people? Wow, 20 years into it. Um, man, yeah, the, the press did put the, the cult on it, obviously. You know, something that um, you know, the, the robes in my opinion, were to dispel the distraction of street clothes because I knew a lot of people were going to be on stage and people always judge you by what you wear. It's just inevitable. And I just thought they'd be exhausted trying to sum up this band and miss the whole point of the music. So we've got to like dispel that and clothe this band in something that works. And to the, at the time, the robes um, made the most sense because the body size it's easier to it's easier to manufacture something like that don't worry about tailoring it it's basically just a piece of fabric clothing the body 
And, and the reason they were white is because we were projecting images. We were kind of like the canvas at the beginning because I was doing psychedelic light shows with my previous band. And I kind of incorporated that with the spree at the beginning. And then it was it was so dark on stage for a lot of the musicians to play and get their fingerings right because I have symphonic people on there and things that they're doing. And so it's like we kind of abandoned that, but we kept the robes, obviously, because it still served its purpose of dispelling distraction of street clothes. Um, and I, I just it was a beautiful image and I just saw it. And um, but my God, yeah, they went crazy over it. They kind of like you know, especially as being from Texas and the Colts, I mean, fresh from the David Koresh days here in Waco, Texas. And so they just loved it in the UK. They just had a field day with it. And so maybe we'd kind of play into it, but basically that's what it was. But you're asking me as a sum of that. I think that a lot of things that were realized about the spree was that it was at the beginning, it was to try to um, hear a sound. Uh, of like something I've been kind of been thinking about for quite some time. If I had my perfect band, you know, what would it be? You know, instead of one person singing, it'd be 10 people singing. Instead of guitars and drums and bass, it would be, you know, strings, horns mixed with that. Just a, a polyphonic spree, you know, a spree of instrumentation, melody, and all going at one time. And the fascination was creating a sound and, the, and once again, another intention was not to create a band that was going to go tour and be this band forever. At, at the very beginning, I wasn't even going to be in the band. I was just going to be out kind of out front getting it going. And I would sit back and enjoy this thing for myself. Well, in order to interpret it, the band and I mean, to the, the songs to the band, I ended up becoming a pretty vital role of it on stage. What happened was all these people um, who had, mind you had never been in a band like this before because a lot of these people were you know from symphonic world these kids would have never been in a band like this because there's nothing there was nothing like this for them it's like stodgy school performances or playing in their bedroom or just you know dot you know just things that weren't rock and roll and all of a sudden you have these people that are able to express themselves who's never expressed themselves in a way that they really want to go with their instrument because it's usually kind of so um sterile and formal and whenever you think of people that play symphonic instruments like that it's just a more of a quiet reserved environment where now you're in a rock band and you can be expressive and so you have these people kind of like feeling the music in their own right and me feeling the music and all of a sudden we're feeding off of each other. We just inherently become part of this sound and an energy that I had not even thought about, uh, about the spree that was being thrown at you if you were in the audience mixed with the music. So now it's not only the, the orchestrations coming at you, it's got this energy of people that are just radiating what they're playing and it becomes something all new and different. And we would have never known that hadn't we played live and kept playing live and then lost ourselves in the music and ultimately became what we are, you know, uh, a great live band, Polyphonic Spree. And um, it's just something that was birthed. And I don't know how to describe it when it happens, but it's really cool and um, it works. <laughs> 
How did a holiday dream fit into the band's big picture? So, you know, we do a, a holiday show. We have done a holiday show for, I think we're on 19 years, 18 years. We've been doing it. Um, I wanted to create a show where my kids could come and be a part of it. You know, their kids, their friends, their parents. So I kind of made a, a family, a family event holiday show. And it was really just so my kids could be there. And we, you know, I love Christmas and we've always gone all out Christmas. And um, I thought, God damn, you know, Spree could do Christmas songs and da, 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 da. And we were playing our Christmas show. And, and it's like, after doing that for so long, we said, well, shit, we need a Christmas record. We've got this show we've been doing every year. And so it just made sense for us to do it. So it was just born. Yeah. Uh in your mind, what is the song on there that sort of best represents what you wanted the album to be like? Oh, man. Um, um, I really liked what we did with um, Winter Wonderland and um, Silver Bells. I'd say those two are my two favorites on there. Yeah, we did a we did a a reprise of Silver Bells with um, School of Seven Bells, right? Uh, um, my old drummer from Tripping Daisy, Ben Curtis, has had a band. He passed away from cancer, um, but loved their band, and so we did a kind of a collaboration on Silver Bells at the end, which is really cool. Um, so those two are probably my favorites, but they're all. I mean, I, Chestnuts. The Christmas song's pretty cool because we kind of left it classic in a way to where it's kind of back in the, like an old black and white movie hearing it, Bing Crosby, and kind of stayed as true that as possible. I like doing that. I was actually going to ask you about Silver Bells because that was the one for me that it was both 
had enough of what you come to the song for, but it was also very clearly transformed in the process. Oh yeah. And, uh, can you tell me about trying to figure out what to do or how you go through the process of turning a song as well known as silver bells into something like that? Um, it basically just starts with me trying to sing the, the lyrics, um, in a different way. The way I usually write is I write, um, I write the melody and the, uh, the lyrics with music all at the same time. I'm not really one that writes the lyrics, goes back and tries to, you know, put the lyrics to a melody and they all come at the same time for me. So I'll kind of just sing, um, like on silver bells and there's a few of them we did like that, but silver, silver bells in particular, um, I just started to sing it in a way like, okay, this is the way I'd like to approach this song, slow it down and draw it out. And, um, it would kind of, we kind of did it like that, you know, it's just kind of riffing, but you riff it with your voice. And then if you find a spot that you, that you kind of like, that you want to jump into and embrace, then you just run with it. And that's kind of how it went. What's your history with Christmas music growing up? You know, I, I'm a, you know, ranking bass kid watching those animated shows, you know, every year. That's where it mainly was. Christmas songs were part of the, what was going on in the house and on the radio. I wasn't like a big Christmas song kid. I didn't really like, only Christmas songs I was really into were the ones who were playing on those TV shows at the time, you know? Um, those really resonated with me. I just liked, I liked all the elements of Christmas. I liked, I liked the lights. They were fun, the snow. Santa Claus, all that kind of stuff, that that stuff that's just been marketed out to Yahoo. I thought it's fun. And it's one time a year that you can go and do all this kind of stuff. And um it's just always been a I've always loved Christmas time. And it's not, you know, it's not more on the religious or level, it's more on the spectacle and the fun aspect of it could be Mardi Gras for me for crying out loud. It's just the time of the year. You get to put lights up and have fun. And it's like, I don't know, I get presents. I mean, what's not fun about the damn thing? <laughs> and so it's like, as a kid, you love that stuff. And, um, you know, I that's all it really was. I wasn't a kid that just, oh, I just love Let It Snow or I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. It was, I liked those songs, but I liked them better being sung by characters of little puppets and things <laughs> like that. <laughs> And not necessarily, you know, the, the guys that, that sang it, you know, Irving Berlin or anything like that. Sure. You know, on the album, you do uh, three, you know, actual carols. And it's a question I've asked a number of people about, and I, and I always sort of work, try to work my way through this. And I wonder what, what we're sort of saying or communicating or what level in which we're engaging in the spiritual dimension when we sing those. Um, have you thought at all about that? You know, I've, I've, uh, I, I have thought about it. Um, I'm, uh, you know, we do some, we do a, a Christmas, we do silent night um, at our show or holiday show. And I usually bring up all the kids up on stage, which is a feat in itself. Cause it's usually about uh, close to, 
75, 100 little kids that you're bringing all, bringing all up with the band already being up there. But it's a really massive stage. But we all sing that song. And it's like, there is, you know, I'm not uh, a very, uh, I'm a religious person. I'm not like a, I'm a, I would say I'm more agnostic than anything. Um, I'm uh, so it's a lot of these words, although I, I love the songs, but the lyrics, some of them don't really, they're not, they don't really resonate with me. Um, I appreciate them and they work for the melody. And I hate to sound like I'm so, you know, it's so uh, detached from the true meaning of those songs, but kind of approach it that way a little bit i know that sounds bad to a lot of people out there and i I apologize but um i just think they're cool some of the lyrics are cool and they work with the melody in the song i'm not per se uh i'm not you know i'm not i'm not attached to them in this spiritual way sure some people are which is totally fine i'm not judging or anything it's just for me i'm letting you know that i'm just they don't, they yeah. don't, they don't resonate with me that way. Sure. No, no. And it, and I'm not looking for, <laughs> and I'm more interested in the different answers people come up with because, yeah. because you're right. There's a whole spectrum. And one of the most interesting was at one point, I remember talking with Suzy Roach about this and the idea that there is in her, was in her mind, a spiritual component, but it's not necessarily what the words specifically say, and it's not certainly tied to any specific faith, any specific, you know, uh, religion. But in her mind, that there was some kind of a larger sort of something that it's us together saying we kind of believe in, we believe in something. Totally, and I, I and I agree with that. There's definitely something bigger out there I'm, I'm a universal kind of guy and i uh i definitely have beliefs um and there's definitely something that you can tie it all to to, to grab and get something like that um just me and, and and christmas songs aside in general you know i've never this is gonna sound bizarre too it's like lyrics were always kind of secondary to me the mo- melody was always the number one thing for me like I would sing songs for years not knowing that I'm singing the wrong lyrics and not really giving a shit if I'm singing them right or wrong I just like the melody and the melody works for me and I'm kind of like that in general and um and that's why I'm I'm some I'm you know lyrical lyrical contents you know I draw things that you know really mean something to me um you're going back to Barry Manilow and you know how he—it's he, just so aspiring to, you know, he's just be, trying to pull that emotion. I kind of do that with my lyrics because I don't—I'm not really like I told you. I—I I, I write the lyrics and the melody at the same time. I improvise it, and a lot of people tend to write down their lyrics as like a as a songwriter. You know, this is what I want to sing about, and the lyrics are very important. Where mine are more like the feeling that I have at the time and how I want to convey that feeling. And, um, it's more, it's more emotional feeling than it is. Um, I don't know. I, I just, it's, you know, talking about Christmas songs and lyrics and and me thinking about how I listen to songs in the first place, I guess I just go back to what I said a while ago is that 
it's always the melody that does it for me. And that's, that's my lyrical like grabbing and I get the emotion from that and the feeling and maybe I'll make up my own words and which I do sometimes, <laughs> and, but it, it works for me, but I get to the place I need to get to emotionally. And that's, I guess that's the most important part in the song. Sure. Side is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. Since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping. The other part of this to sort of bring this thought to a close is, you know, when Andy Williams or, you know, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet or whoever would sing these songs, you know, years past, you know, part of the point in some ways was to signal to their fans, I'm like you. And, right. and, and when as a, as a singer in a rock band, it's a different signal. Um, yeah. And so... You know, it's funny. I remember talking with somebody who started a band uh, to play Christmas music, band that played sort of Trans-Siberian Orchestra-like Christmas music. And he was saying the one challenge he had when he formed the band was getting people who would play it because there were some people who were basically, I didn't learn to play guitar to play, uh, you know, to play Christmas music. Right. And so there's a whole different signal being sent to the extent any signals being sent by yeah. a uh, you know by singing a song that has faith attached to it right exactly i think that if if you were to come to the holiday show it is it is as a kid i can only imagine what it's like but it's a spectacle it's not the songs may be rooted lyrically in certain directions but the the overall spec it is a spectacle and we try to create this this just kind of like a world of it's it's a wonder wondrous world because it's just the night is so like a variety show we have a zoo and we've got people on stilts walking around we have characters from charles dickens walking around we have rudolph and frosty it's snowing in there constantly with just confetti by the time the show's over there's probably three feet of confetti in the whole place it's a it is a party and we serve cookies and milk at the end. It's and this has been going on for 18 years. It's a blowout. So I think and Christmas lights and wrapped packages, everything I was talking about earlier is kind of like what this is. So when you're there and you're doing it, and then we also do a rock set of the spree. So it's kind of we get to tap in these songs for the ornament value of what they are to symbolize Christmas but we're also incorporating our own music and our own flair on it mixed with this crazy wacky show. So it's not like, um, Oh God, I have to play these Christmas songs. You know what I mean? It's kind of like we're doing our, our thing and it works. It's so out there and, and something more, but it, like I said, those songs are kind of like ornaments to our evening. So sure. how does it feel to have something like that show that has become 
I'm sure a par, uh, an, an important part of so many people's Christmas holidays? Man, it's a trip how many small kids, like I said, you know, at that one point when we bring all the kids up there, you know, they're everywhere from, you know, two, three years old, you know, up to about, we've had to like lower the amount because you were getting 12, 13 year old kids up there, like doing all kinds of crazy shit. We're like, dude, you're too old. Get off the stage, (laughs) you know, but it's like, um, but you think about that, like I said, 18 years has gone by for some of these kids that were, you know, three years old, you know, or five or 10 or whatever. And they're like, they're young adults. They're, they're out in the world. They're doing their thing. And they come back and they, I've been coming to your show for 18 years. I've been coming since I was a little kid. And now I'm bringing my kid and just like, you're like, Whoa, wait a minute. What? You know? Um, it's pretty cool, man. A lot of people look forward to that. And it was a bummer canceling it this year because of COVID, but hopefully we'll be back next year. I love it though. Yeah. I, I have to say one of the reasons I, that your record makes so much sense to me is because so much of what I think is important in Christmas is about community. And as I said earlier, yeah. I always hear community in, in polyphonic spree songs and records and so, you know, it, it all makes complete sense to me. Well, it was born in a community. We created a community when we got together and we didn't even realize it. When you have that many people together as one, it, it becomes pretty powerful. And it just comes, it becomes its own thing. And it, it only happens when you, you know, have a village behind you. And that's what it was, yeah. is. Did you, re- did you realize, or sort of, let me change that. Did you discover what or how powerful that lineup and that collection of people and instruments and voices could be once you got started? Did it surprise you just how much and how powerful it could be? Oh, my God. Yeah. I when I started to first of all, when I realized I knew, you know, because the beginning people said we this is great and all, but you can't take it on the road, which made me want to figure it out even more. And eventually we did. But once I started to see how people were reacting to the music and the letters and emails I'd get from people saying what how this music helped them or saved their life or, you know, deep, deep. Uh, I mean, it was so overwhelming how people have been affected by this band that I was not prepared for. And I had no idea. And when you're in it, you don't really realize it. And then when you're, you know, when I was telling you that the lyrics come from an area of like, Hey man, I need saving just like anybody else. You know, it's like, I sing about my insecurities. I'll, I sing about, I can make it through this. I can go through that. I can, we can do this, you know, and I'm trying to convince myself when I'm singing these lyrics, not just for other people. I didn't realize Because once again, remember, I told you that lyrics aren't that thing to me. Like, it's the melody. I'm putting this stuff out there. Well, some of these lyrics do mean something to people. And so they're getting this value mixed with the the music and the melodic structure coming at them. And it becomes something that is, I guess, it resonates with people that are in the same boat as I am at certain times in their life. And that's something you don't go into doing it. It's something you discover. And you discover about yourself, you know, people would ask me questions, why this, why that? And I would come back to after, and that's how it happens is in interviews like this, when we're talking and 
you start to self-analyze and you think, well, why did you do that? And then you're like, okay, well, holy shit. I just, I just realized something, you know? And so that happened through playing many shows and experiencing people's feelings about this band. Thanks to Tim DeLauder for the time in the talk. A Flatus is out now, and they're working on a new album. Tickets are not yet on sale for the Polyphonic Spree's holiday extravaganza in Dallas, but DeLauder expects that they will perform it again this year. But DeLauder expects that they'll perform it again this year, so watch theholidayextravaganza.com for details. You may hear road construction behind me. New Orleans has chewed up its streets and is now in the process of chewing them up a little bit more before finally deciding to close up the wounds. So if you hear some uh, whirring, sawing of concrete behind me, sorry about that. We're just about done, so we're going to keep going. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme song. Thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed or followed or do whatever you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. Come on, don't be a wise guy. Your follows and subscriptions help to bend the algorithm to work for 12 songs. Earlier, we heard Daya Freire's Every Moment is Christmas with You. Since his native language is Icelandic, he recorded a version of the song in his native tongue. I frequently try to handle foreign languages when announcing songs by non-English speakers, but I know enough to know when I've met my match, and I won't butcher this one. I'll include its name and a link to the song in the show notes, and you can take it from there. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Yeah.